The story uh, that we've been following in the Bible together has so far been about three major characters. Firstly, we looked at Saul, who was appointed king of Israel, kind of to appease the Israelites. They were jealous of other nations with their kings, and they thought, I want, we want a king like they do. Uh, and with jealousy in their hearts, God gave them Saul. Uh, the people of Israel demanded a king. And then we looked at Goliath last week uh, with Andy, the champion of their Israelites' old foes, the Philistines, who had gathered against the armies of Israel to take their lands. And in Goliath, we see the embodiment of the forces of evil at work. In his tormenting and in his challenging, we see something of the forces of evil in Goliath. If you missed that message, I'd really recommend uh, listening to it. Today, we, we arrive at our third character study, if you like, which is David, the shepherd boy who, in secret, was anointed by Samuel to succeed Saul as king. David was the youngest in his family, unimpressive, even in the eyes of his own father, and yet God saw what was in his heart, and the wheels of history began to turn. And so we're going to pick up the story in chapter 17. Unfortunately, I don't get the fight. I couldn't believe it. You know when you get the passage through and you're like, oh great, I've got David and Goliath, and they just stop me short before the fight. And you're like, come on, let, at least let me have that bit. But we're going we're gonna to be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, and we're going to start... Uh, in verse 12. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd really recommend opening it to that because we're going to be going uh, into some of the verses there this morning. But before we read it together, I just wanted to make uh, a couple of comments uh, about how we read the Bible uh, and in particular how we read the Old Testament. When we, when we read the Old Testament and particularly stories and narratives like the one we're going to read together this morning, we have to, to read it differently. We have to remember that this story would have been told and retold into a people group that, that knew their history and their heritage well. On hearing the story, they would have known the significance of where different things were taking place. They would have known uh, the tensions that existed between the different people groups. They'd have picked up on deliberate language that was used. They would have been familiar with these stories. They would have known and heard countless times the story of, of David and Goliath. It would have been one of those stories at bedtime when they're, when they're going to bed and the kids are trying to delay their bedtime that they would have said, oh, tell us that story about David and Goliath again. And around campfires and in homes, up and down the land, this story would have been told over decades and centuries. And it's still a story that's told today. But when we approach a text like this, an ancient piece of writing written thousands of years ago, rather than just trying to extrapolate immediately what the meaning is for us, we need to get a handle on, on what it would have meant to the original audience. Without careful attention, we can just approach this part of the story and miss the significance altogether. We can miss the real meaning of it. And so 
as we read a text like this, it's good to have some questions lined up just to help us think about what this text really means. And so we're going to look at three questions this morning to help us think about what's the meaning in this very well-told story and a story that we all know very well. And so the questions are, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about David? And then how are all these things fulfilled in Jesus? And what does that mean for us? So three questions. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about David? And how are all these things fulfilled in Jesus? And then we can think about the significance of that to us. So we're going to read from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's quite a long passage, so you're going to have to bear with me, I'm afraid. I'm not going to do voices, uh, so we're just going to read it straight off. Okay, here we go. Starting in verse 12. But when you... I'm in the wrong chapter. There you go. This is being filmed as well for the 9 a.m. Sorry, guys. Here we go. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Adinanab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand at Goliath. Now Jesse took his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and he will exempt his father's family from taxes. In Israel, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came only down to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? 
He then turned away to someone else and, and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the army of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Some wonderful exchanges there, aren't there, between the different characters uh, in this story. And so we're going to look at that first question about God. What do we learn from God? And the reason why we start with that question is, is because this book is about God. You may have heard it being described, it's a manual for your life. It's not. It is about God. The scriptures are about Jesus Christ. The scriptures are about God. And so we want to approach this story with that question, what do we learn about God first? If we don't do that, we make the Bible about ourselves when it's not. It's a story about him and his purposes and his plans. So let's start by asking the passage, what we've read. What do we learn about God? Where does he feature in the text? Because actually, God isn't mentioned until verse 26. He's not mentioned until verse 26 when, when David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? There's quite a lot that happens before then where God isn't mentioned. And so it would be, you might think, well, maybe... God just doesn't feature at all, but actually God is already at work in the events that are leading up to that moment. Instead of an audible voice from God, or even an acknowledgement that God is at work, what we see is what some theologians call the hidden hand of God. In verses 12 to 15, if you look, if you have your Bibles open, in verses 12 to 15, we're introduced to David again and again, and in particular, his three older brothers, who all follow Saul into battle against the Philistines, while David stays at home with his father and the rest of his brothers. And while all the action seems to be going on in the valley, David is left in the field, tending his father's sheep. Must have been strange and confusing for David because he'd already been anointed as the future king. You might think that this was going to be his moment. There's a battle. I'm off. I'm going to take hold of this. But he's left in the field. In a time of national emergency, David is nowhere to be seen. And it wasn't until his father, Jesse, tells him to become the kind of delivery boy with all the food and particularly the cheeses, that we, that we see the development of the story. 
Jesse had actually four other sons he could have picked. There were four other sons that were, were at home, and yet he chose David. I don't think that is just a coincidence. And so in these opening verses, in those first three verses, what we see is, is the hidden hand of God. God working and orchestrating behind the scenes. They're not just incidental occurrences. There's things that seem most casual are actually linked in a providential chain. Jesse didn't know what was going to happen. David certainly didn't know what was going to happen next. And yet the story was, was being written. So what do we learn? What do we learn about God? Well, we learn that God is always working. He's always orchestrating. He's always sustaining. His plans and his purposes will not be thwarted. They're not distracted. God doesn't backtrack and try and make amends for things. There's always a reason and a purpose. You see, now with Saul as king, it could be misconstrued that that perhaps God was covering his tracks by bringing through David. Realized the error of his ways and here's someone new. But actually, it was God's intention for Israel to have Saul. It was God's intention for the Israelites to experience something of weak leadership, confusion, fear. Israel got what they wanted because of the envy in their own hearts. They got a king who matched that description. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God was lining up situations, events, in order that his plans and his purposes would be carried forward. And it's that connection between the hidden hand of God, God orchestrating things behind the scenes, and the visible, often dramatic encounters that people have in the Bible with God. It's an interesting theme throughout Scripture. We're often drawn, aren't we, to those mountaintop stories like the parting of the Red Sea and Moses with the burning bush, Daniel in the lion's den. And in this story, we can quickly jump to David and Goliath having a scrap and forget that there is all these things that God is orchestrating behind the scenes. We often fail to recognize or appreciate the process, the storyline that leads up to these encounters. This is what it says in in Colossians, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's a profound truth to know that even when the circumstances don't point to it, that God is always working. He's always orchestrating. He's always sustaining. He's always holding all things together. Do you know that? Because it's one thing to know it, isn't it? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I recognize that. God's working behind the scenes. But then when events and things in your life seem to be working against you, it's at that moment where you have to think, do do I really trust that? Do I trust that God is working behind the scenes in my life? Although 
David had already been anointed king, he actually continued just to, to plod along, follow the instructions of his father, deliver the cheese. And he really believed, didn't he? He trusted that God was leading him. Do you know, most of my life is a little bit like that. Just kind of ambling along, kind of hoping that maybe God might be doing something in the background. Uh, where I Very rarely have I really experienced God speak to me really clearly about a decision. Maybe that's just me. Uh, but there's maybe a handful of times where I felt the really strong sense that God is leading me in a particular direction. Most of the time it's been committing to a decision in prayer, seeking wisdom from other people to see if I'm a complete nutter or not. And then if they're like, no, that seems like a reasonable idea, then just do it, making the decision and going for it and trusting that God is going to bless it. So an example would be, when I started to think that Sarah might be the right person for me to marry. I didn't get the audible voice. There, there wasn't a ray of sunshine that just caught her in the middle of the street and I suddenly had this moment where she is the one. I didn't have that. I started to pray about it. Uh, I started to, to talk to people. I started talking to my family. Even, believe it or not, started talking to my church leaders about whether this might be an I- a good idea or not. And if, guys, if you're thinking about marrying a girlfriend, seek the wisdom of others. Uh, maybe your connect group leader, church leader, whatever. It's really helpful to get the wisdom of other people in it. And then over a period of time, I just thought, she's, this is the woman that I'm supposed to marry. I never felt God audibly speak to me about it. And in it, what we've experienced most of the time is the hidden hand of God in it. Just working behind the scenes, bringing us together, giving us an opportunity to be part of a church, to serve in the city, to work in the city. And that's often what the Christian life is about. For David, in these first opening verses, that's what it was like for him. He experienced the hidden hand of God. So we see that, but what else can we learn then? about David. You see, for, the, for David, the story begins in the fields. He's tending his father's sheep. He then is quickly instructed to deliver the food. And on delivering the go- goods, uh, he is with the Israelite army. And we read in verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And here's, here's the thing that you can just skip over. It says, and David heard him. Amongst the hubbub of the army, David hears Goliath shouting. And the writers put that in there because there's going to be a turning point. He's, he's drawing out the significance that above all the noise, David hears someone challenging the armies of God. And in hearing Goliath, rather than being terrified like the rest of the Israelites, David asks, what have we done for the man who kills This Philistine removes the disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It's not not an often thing that you would say, would it? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And it's in that moment that it's the first time that God is mentioned in the passage. He's drawing our attention 
to David's devotion and his faith in God in that moment. He seems to be the only one in the whole Israelite army that has thought, do you know what? Someone is disgracing God here. He's the only one. Saul seems to have abdicated his responsibility as king. No one else seems to be thinking the way that David is. And yet David heard him and says something about it. And there we see something of David's heart, his character, his, his relationship with God. Who does Goliath think he is? Challenging the armies of the living God. Seems to be the only one who's considered this. Up until now, there's been 40 days of stalemate between the Philistines and the Israelites. And Goliath has thrown his taunts to the Israelite army. Threats all throughout that time. And it appears that no one has shown any inkling, including Saul, that they want to face this giant. And so here's where we begin to see the contrast between David and Saul. Why don't we just look at two together. Firstly, if you've got your Bibles open, if you look at verse 25 in chapter 17, we see a contrast in what motivates David compared with Saul. The, the fact that Saul was, was looking for someone else to fight for Israel shows his weakness but, and shows that he's, you know, he's abdicated his responsibility. But he seems to be more concerned about his own protection and security. And then he offers money, his daughter, and tax exemption to try and motivate someone to go and fight this 10-foot giant. And David is disgusted with it. He is disgusted with it. Far from being motivated by wealth and comfort, David is appalled that someone outside of God's people would be challenging the honor of God. You see, Saul is all about self-preservation. He's just looking out for himself. And yet David is about the preservation of God's honor. There's a stark difference between the two men. But the second one we see is who they put their confidence in. Having dealt with the contempt of his own brother, and there's a whole other sermon there about David's older brother kind of saying, who do you think you are? I see the wickedness in your heart. Having dealt with that, he then deals with the unbelief of Saul. This is what Saul says, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. And in those final verses that we read, we get to the real climax of the passage. It's what David says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And in David, we, we see his faith in God. For David, faith is sustained in the present as he remembers what God has done in the past. But we also see that David has a clear understanding of, of who is really going to fight this battle. He's got a really clear understanding. The Lord who rescued me from the lion and the bear will rescue me again. David understands that even though it's through his body, it's not him that's fighting. It's the Lord's battle. He, he, he clearly understands that. 
The Lord will rescue me and you'll rescue me. Again, you see, Saul thought that it was all to do with human strength. And therefore, when faced with the giant, he just runs off, looking for someone else, even offering his own daughter. There's a stark difference between the two kings. And you'd be forgiven in thinking that, but because Saul wasn't God's perhaps ideal choice, that perhaps he didn't want Saul to succeed as much or or didn't provide Saul with the tools that he needed. But if you track back to chapter 10, when, when Saul is anointed by God, this is what happens. Saul, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And then later in the chapter, this is what Samuel says to Saul again. He says, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. And then he says to Saul, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Isn't that interesting? That in Saul, he was anointed, given the power of the Holy Spirit, and then says, whatever you turn your hand to, the Lord is going to be with you. Interesting, isn't it? Because David also receives exactly the same anointing. There's nothing different here that we see in the text. David was anointed, received the Spirit of God, and yet their trajectories are worlds apart. How did that happen? How was it that both men were equally anointed, both received the Spirit, and yet their lives look very different. And as I've been thinking about that and, and reading and, and talking to people about it, I think a large part of it is how each of them have cultivated what God had given them. It's how they cherished and invested in their relationship with God. If you think of, of a garden or in where I live in St. Werburgh, everyone's got an allotment uh, and uh, well, we don't have an allotment, but If you think of two allotments side by side, some people spend a lot of time nourishing, planting, pruning, really taking care of it, and then the allotment next to it is completely overgrown and is a total mess. Saul neglected what God had given him. Saul had neglected the gift that he'd been given. He'd never put his trust in him. Same anointing, same spirit of God, but neglected it. And what we begin to see in David as we read this story is we see a man who cherished the gift that God had given him. In fact, cherished the inheritance that God had placed in his heart. You see, Saul embodies the outward, impressive, put-together, gifted leader to some extent, Saul was the look-what-I-can-do kind of leader, build-your-own-platform kind of leader, went his own way, though, and disobeyed God, led to destruction. The gift that Saul had received had overtaken the giver. For David, who was equally anointed by God, represented something entirely different. It says in the New Testament, it was a man after God's own heart. He demonstrated humility and submission, demonstrated worship. And even in David's 
titanic failures that we will get to later in the series. He's someone that consistently gave God the glory. Consistently came bearing his soul to God and saying, I need you. Creating me a clean heart. Isn't that a wonderful attitude that is shown by David? And so in David was, was planted not just a gift, but an inheritance in him. A promise from God. And, and actually you read of this promise in Psalm 89. Now the, the Bible nerd in me just, it just blows my mind this stuff. So just bear with me, humor me here. But in, in Psalm 89... This is what it says. I have found David, my servant, with my sacred oil. I have anointed him. And in verse 27, it says this. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever. And my covenant with him will never fail. And here's the mind-blowing bit. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. That's the inheritance that David receives, not just in his lifetime, but his throne is going to be established forever. That is a remarkable thing to be said of David. His throne is going to be endured forever. God's promise would be that he would establish David's family line forever. God would establish an everlasting kingdom starting with David. And in that line, a descendant would come a thousand years later, born in the same town as David, but not just to come to deliver the Israelite army, but to bring salvation to the world. You see, throughout the Old Testament, what we see is there is a yearning in the Old Testament for the fulfillment of God's promises. You see it time and time again, a yearning for a truly great king to come along. A yearning for the fullness of God to be expressed. In David, we see a glimpse of it. But he wasn't the king that they needed. It wouldn't be David that was going to fulfill the promises of God. The Old Testament writers only glimpsed in part what would be fully revealed in Jesus. It would be in Jesus that the fullness of God would dwell. It would be in Jesus that peace with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden all those years ago would be restored and brought back together at the cross. You see, when when David walked into the valley to represent the Israelites, the contrast is, is that Jesus, he climbed a hill with the cross on his back and he said, I'm going to bring deliverance to people of every culture, every language, for all time. I am going to bring deliverance and salvation for all that would put their trust in him. And it's the fight we could never fight. The battle of sin in us is a fight that we can't fight. And yet Jesus Christ came and he won a victory for us. And the beautiful thing is, is that we get to revel and delight in the victory of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. We get to say we are victorious because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And in his victory, there's these words that C.S. Lewis shares. And I'm going to finish here. And so if the band wants to come up while I 
share these words, that would be great. But in, in the words of C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, his last book is called The Great Battle, and it's everything's coming to a climax. And this is how he puts it. Once the battle was won, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I'll read that again. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Jesus has won the battle for us, won the victory for us. We can let, let down our, our equipment, our battle, our swords, our spears. We don't need to fight that battle because Jesus has done it for us. And so the question that I want to ask you is, who are you looking to for deliverance? Who are you looking to to bring you ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment? Who are you looking to to fight your battles? Perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning and someone's brought you along and you've just experienced the pressures of life, perhaps something of, of guilt, perhaps you just feel like there's just something out of kilter. And I want to respectfully suggest that it's because you're trying to fight the battle on your own. You're trying to win the war of your life on your own. And there's an invitation from Jesus to say, let me fight the battle for you. Why don't you put all, all the things that are, that are messing you up, why don't you give them to me and I'll deal, them, deal with them for you at the cross. And so there's an invitation for you to respond and I'd love to talk with you at the end if you want to chat about that more. But perhaps you're a Christian here this morning, you've been part of City Church for a while and you think, well, that's, that's all very interesting, but what, is it, what does that mean for me? And there's a question to consider. Where is your faith at? Who are you putting your trust in? What are you putting your trust in? You see, there's loads of good things in our lives that, that bring us satisfaction and fulfillment. Family's good, job's good, resources are good. But those things will never deliver you. Those things will never save you. You might be looking at your spouse to be the one that's going to solve all your problems. Perhaps you're, you're thinking technology and, or, or traveling is going to sort you all out. And Jesus says, no, come and receive me. Let me fight for you. I've already won the biggest victory, but I want to sustain you and keep you. So why don't we stand uh, together, and just as the band are playing quietly behind me, just want a, a moment just to reflect on where your faith is at.